This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Trini Woodall was born the youngest of six children and sent to boarding school as a child. She was told she'd make a good secretary and to limit her ambitions accordingly. Although her background was privileged, it was also challenging. Her family went through money issues when she was in her teens. In her 20s, Woodall fell into addiction and substance abuse, largely, she says, to mask her lack of confidence. She went to rehab and eventually got sober at 26. She started out her career as a city trader before moving into marketing and then into fashion. Along with her friend Susanna Constantine, she wrote a weekly style column for the Daily Telegraph before making the leap into TV. And what a leap it was. What Not to Wear was one of the most influential shows of the early 2000s, attracting millions of viewers, and I was one of them. And it spawned several best-selling books. In her 50s, Woodall made another career pivot, this time into makeup. She founded Trini London in 2017, and I own several stackable Trini eyeshadows and wear her makeup every single day. I'm wearing it right now. It really is brilliant, and I promise no one paid me to say that. The brand recently expanded to skincare. When asked in a recent interview what she'd say to her 20-something self, Woodall responded, I think she'd say, thank God. God, I lost my insecurity, and thank God that your 50s are better than your 20s. Trini Woodall, welcome to How to Fail. Thank you. That was a very nice introduction. <laughs> I genuinely love your makeup. It's, that's all I'm wearing. It's really lovely to hear that, and I'm gratified that you have, because I speak to many people who have or haven't tried it, so it's so nice to speak to somebody and they've had that experience. Yes. And I really, really value how practical it is because recently with all the travel chaos with flying, I've been striving to fly everywhere with carry on only and your stackable pots make that so easy. (laughs) So thank you. Good. Glad to be a I wanted to start the introduction that way and end it that way because for me, it really shows how resilient you are and what a mistress you are of reinvention and career pivots. Have you always been like that? Have you always been able to change according to the circumstances and to make a success of something that for other people would seem like a really serious failure? I think it's very interesting, the difference between reinvention and evolution, because reinvention doesn't maybe suggest you're taking what you've learned into the future. And to me, evolution does. So when I look at my journey, I probably, Elizabeth, think it's how I've evolved as a person. And to an outside world, it's like reinvented. She used to do fashion, now she does beauty. That's a reinvention, which it is. But 
I think you get to a stage that if something isn't working, you've got and you have in you that passion to do something to change the world or to change how people think or to help people. You then think, well, how else can I do it? And there are definitely moments where you are so disheartened by what you have not achieved that you set out to achieve in that period. Or you feel like in the instance when I, you know, stopped being on TV in England and nobody wanted to have us on TV in England because there were other more exciting people who felt pressure. That kind of picking yourself up and thinking, okay, what do I still have to offer and what do I need to develop and evolve to be something that's exciting? And there's a kind of mix of both. It sounds like you're very honest with yourself then. I am. I don't know if I am all the time because sometimes, you know, I can walk around deluded about certain things. (laughs) So I can be hard on myself in terms of what I haven't yet achieved or what I feel I should be doing more of. I can think I'm doing some things better than I do until somebody says, hey, Trini, I don't know if you are. So yesterday I was in a situation where I had to really challenge myself on how I was as a CEO, you know, how I was turning up as a CEO and what what can I do to improve how I do that? That is an ever evolving journey when you get to be a CEO for the first time at 50, because you're bringing a lot of experience of life with you and you're learning about managing and delegating to a team. Whereas up to that point in my life, I felt responsible for every action and every thought I had. And it becomes very different when you grow a business because you are entirely responsible for guiding the direction of that business, but the execution in the guiding of what you want to achieve is done by many people and your trust in how they do it is integral to how the business grows. That's so difficult then. Because, so how did you have to challenge yourself yesterday? You mentioned that there was a specific instance. Is it to do with managing people? Because that's something that I really struggle with. I very much struggle with the need to be liked, but also having to have business boundaries in place. Yeah, I think it's about learning to work with different characters. And one thing I know I am, like one thing that will I'll never not know, and it's one of my talents is that I can read a room and understand what somebody's thinking, even if they don't want to admit it. I kind of know it because when you work for a long time, where like in TV over 20 years, one of the things you've got to learn how to do really quickly is to create an intimacy in a relationship so you understand what that person's thinking and not being able to say, and you want to try and help them get it out. That's kind of like the best skill to have when you do makeovers and also knowing how to dress them. But it's that fundamental skill. If you watch something and it's an engaging program, it's because that's in there. There's an intimacy created. So in this situation yesterday, it was about being vulnerable to try and allow somebody else in the room to be vulnerable. You know, and we will always come across instances like that where we can either just be the kind of strong boss or we can try and show some vulnerability, which allows somebody else to open up. And that doesn't always go according to plan, you know, but it's not weakness to be vulnerable. And it's really important. It was just a very emotional experience yesterday, which I'm still feeling. It's like, you know, when you have an unbelievably good cry and it's quite therapeutic, or you have an incredibly strong emotional situation and it drains you, but you feel like that sort of very heavy day for four days and suddenly it rains and it's much better afterwards. It's kind of that great clarity today, actually, as a result of this. And it's about sometimes you need to push those emotional situations so that cards are really laid on the table so that you can then just let it out, wake up the next day, have great clarity and then have the vision. Like today I have very specific things on which all about the future of the business and, and something else as a project I'm doing. And I need to bring my best brain to the table today in what I'm doing. So doing this is nice, actually, in the middle of my two really important meetings today because it gives me a chance to remember what I have to offer because that's a little bit of what we're discussing. Yes, Um, Trini, that's so beautiful how you just put it. And it's everything that I believe about vulnerability actually being the source of strength and connection and solidarity. And I think that's very brave of you. And you basically described having an emotional hangover and then waking up that day when you're like, I'm no longer hungover. Hooray. Let's just talk quickly about what not to wear. I was a devoted viewer. 
And many of those programs, I mean, I know we're in a different TV era now, but many of those programs were deeply moving because clothes can be so important. They can be armor, they can be a misplaced defense mechanism. What really sticks in your mind from those programs? Is there one particular exchange that you always remember? There's more than one, actually, because, you know, the original What Not To Wear we made in England for BBC, and it was uh, three or four seasons, I can't remember. And it was kind of very sharp edit, have a hierarchy, 360 mirror, wow, secret filming, lots of kind of points that you push in TV to keep the attention of the viewer. So quite sort of black and white. Undress I made with ITV and it was about going into a couple who had had difficulties and working out if they could learn to love themselves again. Totally different story. Maybe one that people weren't ready for, but I so enjoyed making that because you felt you had an impact and all of those stories I remember every single one because they were ones, you know, husband and wife, wife gets breast cancer, can't then undress in front of her husband for the five years after. And it's the journey of how can you allow yourself to feel your husband still loves every part of you? And how can we help you get there? And how can we help the husband let the wife know that it's so irrelevant to him what's happened to her? He still loves her profoundly. Those things move you and they stay with you. So I do remember those a lot. And I remember that the most important thing for me was somebody would emotionally move forward. If they decided when we did a revisit show on what not to wear and they were wearing 50% of what they used to, if I felt their headspace had changed, I felt we'd succeeded. And then after that, when we stopped working in England, we had a magic knicker company. We had a, a Spanx company. And the company in France set who you know we worked with said, can you make a show in Belgium? Suzanne and I were like, well, nobody's working with us in England, we'll do it. So we made this tiny show, it was really stressful to make. You know, they had a sponsor for the show that was clothing sponsor at Compromise, our creative integrity. It was really challenging on many levels. We did the show, but anyway, the people who distributed it took it to MIPCOM and 14 territories bought the rights. And, you know, our agent called up and said, they bought the rights. And I said, fine, did we get any money? And they went, no, they want you to go to those countries to make the shows. And because we weren't making anything in England, we thought, why not? And also we had mortgages to pay. We were, you know, main breadwinners in our family and we needed to go out and earn money. And at the moment in England, we weren't earning money. So we did the shows. And that journey for me was the most interesting journey of all the makeovers I did. And it was the most of the knowledge I gained that I brought into the business of Trinity London, because What it did is it took me to many countries with different cultures and skin tones and ages and attitudes towards women from India to Poland to Australia to Israel, America, Scandinavia, lots of countries. And in each of those countries, whatever the religion might be, or, you know, in India, I dress a lot of Hindu women, Muslim women. In Israel, I was dressing Orthodox Jewish women and very liberated women. There was this common theme of we get to a place sometimes in our life where we get stuck and how can we move forward? And so I've always carried that and thought, how can you move somebody forward? It might be the most smallest thing that a girl was the star of her class at university and she goes into a job and she suddenly feels tiny fish in a huge pond. And who is she? You know, you might have a woman who has got to a stage in life where she has many people around her who all want her to be a certain type of woman. And in that, she loses sight of who does she actually want to be and present herself to the world. And so, so many of those women were incredibly powerful stories and stories I will remember always because they were women having to make a huge shift in their life. And where do you think this drive of yours comes from? I mean, if I were going to play cod psychologist for a minute... The fact that you were sent to boarding school at such a young age, I think you were six, you were also the youngest of six children. Was there part of you that felt a lack of confidence in your own space in the world that wanted to feel better and that therefore wants to make other people feel better? Would that be fair? Profoundly right on every level, I would say, Elizabeth. Yes. (laughs) um, Yeah, profoundly right on every level because going to school, it was a very different era. This is the 60s, but I didn't have a close relationship with my parents because they had a very old-fashioned approach to bringing up children. And one of those was also that boarding school was an option at quite a young age, which you look back on now and I think I thought of Lila at six and a half, would I ever send to school? You've got to be kidding. I don't blame my parents, that's how it was, but it did definitely make me feel, what can I do to make people like me? You know, and at school, I wasn't 
academic at school and I was quite good at acting. I wasn't really good at anything else. I got very bad O-level and A-level results and I was terrible at sport and I was sick of it so I couldn't be in sport. So at school you're kind of, there's kind of academic, sport or sort of drama. So drama I, I had a win on but I wanted people to like me. There was probably an element of feeling rejected by elements of my life and so I found those first years of school quite painful. I had to when I moved school, I stayed down a year. So I'd kind of struggled to really make friends at 10, 11, when I moved to another school that my sister was at. And and then because I my academically was really bad, the people I'd painstakingly for the first time in life made friends with moved to the next year up and I had to start over. I remember that time I felt very challenged by that and, and working out who my friends were. And, and to begin, it was, it was just to have a friend. And then it was actually getting that little bit more of confidence thinking is this the friend that I'm really getting on with or actually is it just for the sake of having a friend you know so there was a lot of quite lonely feelings until I was probably about 15. There was a feeling of loneliness my all my brothers and sisters had kind of left the home you know so I'd see them in holidays but not really during school that much so I did want to always have something that people would like about me so I was quite good at sort of looking at people and saying, oh, if you tweak that with your uniform and put a bit of makeup on. And then people would say, Trini, what do you think? And I loved it. It gave me such a kick to feel somebody needed, in my opinion. That literally, that basic. Are you shy? I'm confident and shy. And they can be two linear things because I will go to a big event and love to spend time in the loo if I feel don't know if there's anyone to talk to to hear, you know, just because I just feel uncomfortable to stand and look for people I know. And sometimes, you know, I'm really tall, so it's easy. I always wear very high heels when I go out. Now, not so much because I know my legs take it, but it would help me see people in the room that I would know. You know, I was when I was up to about, you know, in my 20s, I was really shy. But I'm also confident. I also will, and this is probably in the last few years, if I go somewhere now, I will just go up to people and say, hi, I'm Trini, who are you? And I just, sometimes my daughter is embarrassed by my forwardness when we're in a place or standing next to somebody I've never met before, and I'll just chat to them. And I think you do that having come from a sort of TV world because you just begin conversations and she can't understand why I'll just begin conversations with strangers. But I enjoy it. I enjoy seeing what makes people tick a lot. And, and every time you start a conversation with somebody, you just learn something else about human nature. And I like to always be doing that. So those two run linear. I love that. I think we're so similar in that respect. I'm also tall. So I'll see you at a party <laughs> hovering yep. above the heads of everyone else. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Let's get on to your failures. Your first failure was the launching of your 1999 business. Tell us what that business was and what happened. It was something that I used to write a column in the Telegraph for years. And then we did a show... Granada which then didn't get picked up and then I was just really interested in the internet Susanna not so much actually she loved writing and doing the column and but she was also becoming a mum and things and I kind of was obsessed by it and I just felt it was exciting and I I'd always been a bit techy like my very first job I had an apple literally a few years after they were made you know when I was sort of 20 I was obsessed with the whole modern technology element and I remember somehow I made a connection that there would be e-commerce online. There wasn't by the stage, but I felt there's going to be what I did know and understand compared to writing a column in a newspaper is you could do something and it could be seen around the world. And I love that, that your audience was global in a flash. And that was not at that stage something that was present. So I kind of felt if you could have a portal and I remember one long weekend, I did some weird cleanse. I never do cleanses. I don't give a shit about diets, but I just, for some reason, did this thing. But it gave me great clarity. I drank this disgusting stuff out of a bottle and I drank bottles of it. And I just, I don't know why I did it, but I did it. I think I was doing a thing of trying to have a child and that I was trying all different things. <laughs> you know, cleanse your body of sugar. You will be able to give me more fertile, whatever it was I was trying. And I kind of had this real epiphany. I felt I want to create destination. I had such a clear vision of what I wanted it to be. I felt I wanted it to be all areas for women. I knew I'd have a focus on things that people knew us for, like clothing and makeup and style. I knew that the biggest frustration for women was that they would buy things and they wouldn't fit or where could they find things? There was a lack of where can I find something? So I had the idea. I wrote down 20 pages and I said, Susanna, I think we should do this. And then we took it somewhere. We took it to Cable and Wireless, who were 
only because I read they were doing e-commerce platforms. And we took the marketing person there. We cold called them. They at the time were wanting to do things for women online. They didn't know where they were heading. And she said, what do you need? I said, 500 grand. Susanna kicked me on the table saying, are you insane? I had no idea. Two weeks later, she sends me an email, the woman, and says, I don't think you've got the right amount. I think you need 650 grand. So they give it to us. And then with that, I think, oh, my God. So this is the point by which I then did things very differently today with Trinity London. But I thought immediately, I've got a great idea, but I have no idea how to execute this idea. So I need to find people who know things better than me. So I asked my brother, who is good with finance, to be CFO. I was founder. I got a woman in from Barclays to be CEO because I thought I don't know how to run a business. I'm sort of creative and founder. We then raised seven million from two VCs in two and a half months, quickest raise I've ever done, and hired women very quickly, predominantly female. We had hard coders. We did Pearl Coding at the time. So we had a lot of people in tech writing the code. We developed technology that would show a woman's body shape and you could change it. It was really advanced technology. I remember going to see sex sites, sexclub.co.uk, because they have the best animation in England on <laughs> online. And I remember getting to his office and, you know, there were literally other rooms. And I said, what's in those rooms? And I saw polls. You know, it was so funny, but it was the thing that the sex industry then were the most visual animation of anything online. And I just found it interesting. So I thought that was a good place to go and talk to them. So anyway, the ideas were big and the execution did not allow for a lack of e-com starting and therefore no way to monetize. And after about a year, we then went into sort of dot-com boom, went to dot-com bust 2001. And it was really changing the industry. The reinvestment was really challenging. We had no path to profitability and we had to close it. So I had to close it after about less than two years. And it was so painful because I had become, during that process, it had become my life. Susanna had children, so she was in the business, not probably as much as I was, because she was pregnant, having babies. You know, I would be calling her at eight, I didn't want to say, where are you? She said, I'm breastfeeding. And I'll say, well, can you come in quickly, please? I had no comprehension of what it was like to be a working mother because I was so obsessed and it then I had to wake up to the fact that we wouldn't be able to get financing and and we had to close it and I had to close it by myself Susanna was having her baby her second baby or I don't know and I just remember moving the office trying to negotiate the contracts all the big players who've worked in the business left so it was kind of then suddenly up to me to do all the things my CEO and CFO had done and I wanted to make sure all the team had a good severance pay. So negotiating with our investors, it, it was really challenging. And I remember I sat in this tiny office with two people in the business thinking, what next? What am I going to do? And, and feeling at that stage, what have I got to offer? Because I did, still did the column for the Telegraph, but I'd made my, my vision of what I, my life should be so much bigger than that, that the Telegraph didn't seem much. It was great. I had a bloody income, so it was really great. But my vision had been popped. So, you know, I went abroad and I went on a retreat in Arizona at this place called Cottonwood, which did, you know, um, retreats for people who are in recovery. And I did a week retreat. And what I learned for the first time then, which I try and do more of now, is that I had to bloody well live in the moment. You know, I live so much in what I've done, what I've got yet to do, that I hadn't cherished the present and I hadn't really made the present weighty to give me that feeling of a grounding to not have that sort of imposter syndrome I'm going to be found out moment so in that week it was an unbelievably intense week so I came back Elizabeth and I was like I'm open to whatever is going to happen next not like let me grab around and try and you know make something happen which might not be the right thing for me and then I got a call from the BBC so fascinating there are so many questions I want to ask you because I've never gone through that kind of business experience I wonder what it feels, does it feel like grief or does it feel like heartbreak? Does it feel like humiliation? Like what what other experience would you relate it to or is it just entirely unique? I'd say the thing it least felt like was humiliation because humiliation is a public condemnation of what you're doing. And, you know, I had to do an article in the FT saying we've gone into hibernation. I just felt so sad it hadn't succeeded because I really, the thing was, Elizabeth, I still believed the vision was right. So I think that's what saddened me the most, that I had put my faith in people I'd employed who were really qualified and they had glided in the business and hadn't grafted. So I actually looked at all the things 
I would do differently if I ever did it again. Even at that stage, I thought that. So when I came to start Trinity London, I thought I'm not going to hire really overqualified people too early who would take me on a journey of where they think their business should go. And I need to have the faith in myself that I know our consumer and I know where the business should go and that I will hire those people when I need them to help me execute getting it there on my vision. Mm. So that was a biggest change and that I knew I needed to not want to be all things to all people which we want to do too much at once then starting eight channels but start with the core so in terms of verticals you know then we were doing clothing makeup cookery homeware everything it was just you know what do you focus on as a consumer so to me I knew I had to start with one I have six verticals I want to do for Trinity London but I had to start with one I had to prove that vertical to myself and to investors before I started on another and build the business that way. So there was so much I learned. But at the time, when you talk about what was my core feeling, it was just heartbreak. It was like having to break up with somebody you're in love with and not one of you is leaving the other, but knowing you have to break up, which is the most painful way to break up. Yeah. And you mentioned that you went to Cottonwood and that you were and are in recovery. Were you ever worried that the pressure or the stress of that situation would cause a lapse in your recovery? Never, never. I mean, I feel that when I was in very early recovery, I had quite a few, like four of my very good friends didn't make it. And I had a really profound sense that I have one life. It really like, you know, that has never left me. So the recovery I have now is my interpretation recovery. But I have a spiritual path. I have a sense of I need to have that time to have a sort of meditation in my day. I need to write a gratitude list of, you know, things I am grateful for as a person. I need to challenge myself and my character traits to know if I'm living my life with integrity. Some days are really really good, some days I'm shit at it. So those elements I carry with me now. But at that time, I just think I've never ever thought for a second in, you know, that was 1990 that I would go and let's become, you know, cocaine addict. No. I have to say, I'm finding it so calming speaking to you. I find you very calming and wise. And I'd expected a lot of things from this interview, but I hadn't necessarily expected that sense of calm. (laughs) I've got my, because of what happened yesterday. (laughs) Well, oh yeah. It's so interesting that it's, I mean, I suppose it's part of that linear duality which is actually complimentary that we were talking about about being confident and shy you are calm and wise and considered and you are also trini on instagram who is this ball of fantastic energy that (laughs) makes me want to buy everything in zara and get it tailored i don't really have a question there i just wanted to comment on it (laughs) but my question on this failure my final question on this is about money Because it strikes me, having done my research and read a bit about you for this interview, you've gone through several times in your life where you have lost everything or almost everything. That must have felt, I imagine, very insecure and uncertain. So what's your relationship with money like? Does it scare you? It's complicated. I was going to say to you, because you said to me at the very beginning, if there's anything you need to change or take out, let me know. And the one thing was that when you say things in interviews over the years, they get misinterpreted. So my dad didn't lose all his money when I was 18. But what happened was we had this very, very privileged lifestyle of living between a few countries. And then when I was 16, 17, there was a big change. You know, we still owned a home. I would say the height of my father's business success was sort of 30s, 40s, and then 50s, there were some changes in his life. So what was very interesting in that is I saw that, you know, in my life and I saw the effect it had on him and the changes he had to make to his lifestyle as a result from what he had achieved very early. I took that in. I've taken that in, Elizabeth, and it affects some decisions of how I think about things today. There are a lot of people who have success at a certain stage and we might know this and know that we have parents who you know, are at a stage where if they're alive, they've had to compromise the life they had because they're older and their financial planning was different. And so, you know, the ability to live a consistently great life that you want to have for yourself, whatever that entails for you as a person financially or just moralistically or whatever, you know, I want to have the freedom to do that. And 
when I was younger, you know, there was a time when my parents never pushed me to go to university or to do anything. And my sister, you know, had a lovely apartment in central London. And, and so when I was 18, I kind of knew I just had to start work. And most people start work at 18 or when they go to university. But I sort of, first of all, I don't think I was smart enough to go to university, but I kind of knew I also had to go and earn money. I had a Saturday job when I was 16 to 18, cutting meat in partridges. You know, I, I did that because my memory is always really bad, but I know I needed to earn pocket money because I wasn't necessarily getting pocket money from my parents. So, and I would start businesses at 16 at school. I started a business, you know, called Bose Unlimited. So there was this part of me that knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I, I also knew I needed to earn money. And when I started my first job, you know, I was paid £8,000 a year as a salary. That's probably what most people paid if they didn't go to university. So I've always wanted to live beyond my means in so much that I love lovely things. I love clothes. You know, I love to waste my money away on clothes, whatever it might be. I just love them. Like people might love to buy themselves a nice sofa or telly or a car. I just like clothes. <laughs> and that's something that doesn't earn money as you as you buy them. So I've had periods in my life where I've earned a lot of money and I've been the sole breadwinner and I've been supporting quite a few other people in my life. And there's been periods of time where I've earned no money when all my friends around me have been earning quite good money. And I've had to kind of work that one out for myself. So it's very interesting, our relationship with money. You know, to me, when I look at the possibilities of financially where Trini London could take me, there are some founders who have a vision which is a very financially driven vision and some founders who have a vision which is a sort of spiritual vision. And my vision is one where I want to feel at some stage where I'm not too old, Elizabeth, where I feel that full financial freedom that if I couldn't work from tomorrow, I wouldn't be changing how I would like my life to be. It's not that I'd suddenly like to take a private jet or feel I always travel first class around the world. It's just literally kind of sort of basic things. I think when you're 20 or 30, you might think I want to be a billionaire and the value of the company has to be a billion. And, and I, I have a vision for Trini London, which is about I want it to be an incredibly successful company because then I feel it has an impact on so many more people. So the bigger it is, the more impact it has. And I know that as a business, you know, to many people who are customers of Trini London, we're more than a beauty brand. We bring them something else. And I love that. There are a lot of not-for-profit businesses. And our concept of not-for-profit is that we want to be more than just a product for people, but we just want to make them feel better about themselves. And even if they never bought a product from us, that halo effect of what myself and Trini London represents to women is something that I want to be global, fully, fully global as a concept. Money is a complicated thing. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's fascinating hearing you talk because I recently had a realisation and it comes from the freelance life, which I know, you know, my background is also print media and I know you'll understand yeah. this. It comes from that fear that if you say no, you're never going to get an offer again. Go and on, yes. and I realised that actually the bulk of my stress and anxiety comes from that mindset. Yeah. And I had this moment where I thought, how would my decision making be different if I chose not to worry about money? And just as a sort of hypothetical exercise, yeah. how might yeah. I change my answer to that thing I'm being offered? And it was a revelation because it suddenly became so, so much what clearer. What did you then do from that to get yourself to that mindset? And do you think you're successfully there? It's a process. The reason that I got to that point, and this is something I'd love to talk to you about during the course of this conversation, is because... I'm on a fertility journey that has lasted the best part of 11 years. And as you will know only too well, as someone who did lots of IVF, yeah. and I salute you for that, like stress is one of the major things that you keep being told, you know, you've got to get ready and you've got to calm and you've got to... <laughs> so that's where the thinking came from. I was like, I need to make a change in my life because I can't operate at this level of adrenalized stress. So then it was about working out why I was stressed. And I was like, well, I'm so busy and I feel like I got... And that came from fear that it might all go away tomorrow. And it did change. Like I quit a job after I had that realization because I thought, okay, if I'm not going to worry about money, what does it bring me? What does it bring me? Yeah. And actually it didn't bring me enough spiritual sustenance to do it for that reason. So I think I'm getting there, but I don't think I'm there yet. Mm. I mean, I, there's so many things to unpack yeah. because I feel that I remember when I was on that IVF journey and 
you know, for the first few years of it, I was very stressed. And I remember being on set and what not to wear. And, you know, two times I lost a baby on set. And it was like I'm quite so long for the right 16, oh, 18 God. weeks. And that was probably, in many reasons, Elizabeth, why one does miscarry. Um, and I remember always my very nice IVF doctor said that embryo is like it's in a hot air balloon. You know, it's so protected. It's not falling or it's literally. But but there is something that we feel that courses through our veins of that feeling of when you're stressed and that cortisol adrenal release. And I know inherently that's not great for getting pregnant. I just know that whatever, whatever a scientist might tell you there's still that part of that thing. So releasing ourselves from pressures that we put upon ourselves, like that kind of our vision of what we feel. Every August I had what you had, you know, because I had TV contracts and book contracts and column contracts. And every August it would be, will I be renewed? And I remember August was never a time I could go and relax and have a full summer holiday because I was waiting to see, would that contract be renewed? And I lived that life for 18 years in the industry of that, you're only as good as your last book, as your last column, as your last TV show. So it's a very difficult way to live, but it also, the more feared you are, the less faith you have in yourself to know that you're good at something. And it's about how do you go? It's like, there was a wonderful book called Feel the Fear and Doing It Anyway, which I read in rehab many years ago, written in, I think, the 50s or 70s, I can't remember. And it is that feel it. It's like when you do meditation, you know, the thought comes in and just acknowledge it and let it go wherever it's going and that's my when I'm on doing healthy days around fear it's about okay I'm feeling fear that's okay but that is that voice inside my head which is not the core of me you know because as soon as it articulates itself it's no longer me yeah when it's just feeling I feel it's me but when it articulates into negative messages that's when I think can you shut up now and just go and be quiet because that's not me and I have to remember that. And some days I do and some days I don't. But that, you know, thing around money and thing around the fear of financial insecurity, which is what we're really talking about, is days that I can be really like, you know, I kind of already have what I need in a way. I, I sort of think I don't because of some weird circumstances. But yes, I could have a life at this place. So why can't I let go of what that need is or that amount in my mind to have that total financial freedom? It is above a certain financial point, totally a state of mind. We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. I don't want to move on to your second failure without acknowledging your loss and how traumatic and difficult that must have been to go through two miscarriages on set at a time when your friend and co-host is having babies seemingly with ease. I haven't had that direct experience, but I've had a lot of experiences that I can relate to that on a cellular level. So I just want to acknowledge that. And I know that we're going to get onto your beautiful relationship with your daughter and your third failure. So I'm going to park that for now and, yeah. and go on to your second failure, which is your failure to commit to yourself 
which is a fascinating one. And you mentioned that business that you started at school, Bose Unlimited, and this failure relates to that. Tell us how. Because at the beginning of any sort of entrepreneur's journey or when you have an idea, you just see everything you want to do. And when you do it with somebody else, you're halving the dream and halving the responsibility, but you're making it conditional upon somebody else too. But, you know, we have this idea. I don't even know who had the idea first, actually. It was just to do these hair bows. Princess Diana was around. She had these lovely hair bows. We went to Portobello Market, got brooches. We got lots of fabrics, made these bows, you know, walked around London selling them. We were still at school. And it was a sort of era where it was a fad, but we sort of bought into it. And I really wanted to do it and I liked it. And then my friend who had wanted to go to art school when she left school said, I'm going to go to art school, so I'm not going to do it with you anymore. And I gave up on it because I just felt, do I myself have the ability to follow through on this? And I decided I didn't. There was lots of good learning in that, but I just let go of it. Now, it would have been a tiny little business, which probably would have just stopped anyway a few years later because it was just a one-trick pony, and I didn't have enough life experience to then think, what else could it be? And I was very good at starting things and not finishing them, and my mother in her life started so many things and never finished them. I did actually think of that, I'm just like my mother. (laughs) The amount of writing paper I'd find of my mother's with different little company names on it. You know, my mother was magnificent, but also she had some traits in her that I didn't respect. Very difficult thing to say that, but I, or I didn't understand or appreciate because I think didn't respect is really hard to say about your mother. It was easier to say, oh, it's not going to work because I kind of, my mother was like, move on to the next. There was a little bit of being my mum in this. I don't know. I did do a few more than one, you know, because I did another one called Socket to You when I was then 21. Great name. Yeah, I'll sock it to you. I I did it with this other girlfriend who was kind of a trust fund girl and I wasn't kind of thing. You know, I had to earn the money, but she sort of, so we did that out of her flat and it was about socks. I went to Barter in East London. We got these socks made and I got all these lovely girls and they went on the trading floor. I had lots of friends who were on trading floors and they would go around with baskets of socks and I just thought, what do men need the most so they don't have time to buy it? Socks. And so... You know, they went and bought the socks off these girls and the girls, I made sure, were all pretty and flirty. You know, I was a real feminist at the time. But it was just they were lovely girls, you know, just kind of naive, sweet girls. And all the men fell in love with them and said, let me buy 10 socks instead of 20 so they could chat to them for five minutes longer. So really, really politically incorrect now. And, you know, I loved that business. And then because I wasn't experienced in business, there were lots of problems came up, like the socks really ran in the wash the elastic of the pop sock went. So, you know, I had all these disgruntled calls. Of, you know, we didn't have customer service department. I was the customer service department. And it was like, you know, I want a refund and my socks aren't working or, I'm, you know, and it just then petered out. But we, by this stage, in that midst of the success, had ordered so many socks. And I remember for like 20 years, I kept finding another bloody box of socks in an attic or back of a garage, I was saying, or something. And it was like this <laughs> reminder of this failed business. God. <laughs> oh my god that that was one of my worst ideas really I mean you you say and you say this quite frequently actually that you're not clever and I beg to differ I think you're super clever and smart <laughs> to have these ideas and that creativity and just be brilliant at puns but do, what do you think that those experiences taught you about imposter syndrome do you still have imposter syndrome I'd have maybe two days a month where I have imposter syndrome as a CEO mm. In terms of as a founder and a vision for a business, I have no imposter syndrome. I know exactly what I want to do. I know exactly what I want to offer people. I know exactly what I want to create for them. And I'm sort of most unwavering in that. I have most of my belief in that. And sometimes it will help me then feel a better CEO. So oddly, in this meeting I was in this morning after this you know, post monsoon of yesterday, I was quite quiet in the meeting. And then it was talking about, you know, lots of different people about things, future of the business. And I just, you know, started to talk a lot about my vision for the future, which I hadn't for a while, because I'd just been so caught up in day to day stuff. And afterwards, some people who work with me just were like, really excited, you know, and I just thought, I I have it in me here, it's here. That's what I'm really good at. And then that allows me to acknowledge that makes me a good CEO because you need, you know, CEO needs to have vision of where that company is going to be in five or 10 years. And I have that. I know that. It's just the little bits in between on a few days a month that just like, 
I question, am I doing the right thing here? And I think if I ever met a CEO who never questions themselves, I'd be really worried about their ability as CEO, I'd say that, because you need to question your decisions. But then once you commit to them, you need to commit. And sometimes when I'm just a bit flaccid about my commitment to a decision, that's when I need to like, hey, Trini, give yourself a kick up the arse. Mm. What about Instagram, Trini? Because I feel like you know yourself completely in that form. So do you, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you never get imposter syndrome when you're doing those star videos that have yeah. amassed you over a million followers, BTW. Yeah. yeah, never. Very different audiences too, because like we have an Instagram one, which is a million. Facebook is two million actually. And Facebook is really interesting because Facebook, you have the ability to have a two-way conversation much more than Instagram. What I find most exciting about social media is that I started doing it and I went straight to kind of video like in 2017 because I didn't know, you know, take a nice picture. I did that for a few weeks on Instagram. And then I just actually thought I just want to chat. And it was, I think I was quite early to do video. And as a result, you know, when you were going through the feed, suddenly this woman's jabbering away about something, it arrests your attention. So I think that from that, especially on Facebook, which is all just posting pictures of dogs and cats and memes in its early stages, it was kind of like we, we got there's very big following and it creates an intimacy it's a place one can be very intimate and it sounds such an oxymoron but when I do do lives and we accelerate a lot during lockdown because a lot of people were at home and they were consuming social media more and I just have a conversation about what I was feeling at the time and you know if it was a shit day I'd go on say shit day I didn't want it to be too contemplation of the belly because I think you need to be there to give something to other people and I see the purpose is to give something and share things with other people that help them. There are very few days when I went on to help myself because I was feeling shit and I knew having a good conversation with people I'd never met across the world, but who I talked to consistently for a year during lockdown was going to help me too, you know. But I've always felt in my life that if there's something I discover that I feel is interesting and helpful to other people, I want to tell everyone about it. You know, there are people in life who want to keep it for themselves and I'm somebody who I want to share it and sometimes I overshare those things but I do feel passionate about things I I love and I think are useful or make you feel happier and so I think that I never plan or rehearse and as a result when people watch they know that's just literally a stream of consciousness it's not edited or filtered or anything and I think in the world when so much is edited and filtered that maybe that's broken through and that people feel that's going to be a, you know, whether I like her opinion or not, it's going to be a conversation I might listen to for a couple of minutes. And I enjoy doing it too. And I think that, you know, we have a very unique community at Trini London because a lot of communities, when you build a business, are manufactured by the business or it was a community which then turned into a business. But our community is very different and it's our harshest critic and our biggest champion. And there is no money that exchanges hands and there's just giving them tools to make them feel better. It started with a little woman in Northwest England called Kelly, and she started this fan page on Facebook and she followed me. And then it was at the time I was starting Trini London. So, you know, she said anyone else following Trini and what she's doing and she got a group together and then all these other sort of groups appeared. And then when we were, the business was growing and, and one of the people who worked social media said, Trini, I'm finding all these other sites. Did you start them yourself? What are they? You know, we found all these site so we got in touch with the people who admin the page and we said look this is great you're posting all this stuff and you're taking a little bit of Trini's face or a bit of the logo do you want a logo you know we can give you a logo so you can all talk to each other so we created this logo they call themselves the Trini tribe we wrote Trini tribe and then we started communicating with the people who run them but we said do you want to have a kind of charter you know have some premise by which we post and don't post so we created this charter of what we wanted these pages to be that they would never ever put down any other woman that nobody would try and sell their sort of home-baked cookies on the side that it would be a place you encourage and support other women and you talk about stuff you are liking and so it is that and you know it's a place where we now have 33 around the world they're in 16 countries some have 500 members some have 12,000 members They post every day. I look at them every day, all of them. There's a global Trini tribe and there's lots of local ones. But, you know, I see people saying, I've never posted a picture myself before, but I feel safe enough to do it here. And I put this outfit on because I want my husband to love me again. I mean, you get the most intimate stuff there and it's an incredibly special community. And I feel very privileged, sounds so pretentious. I feel so happy that community is there. 
and that as a result of something I've started, that community has blossomed. But Trini, it's like everything that you wanted at school on yeah. such a massive <laughs> level. You've now got these two million friends. It is that. It is yeah. that. And then you know, there's people on there that, you know, there are thousands and thousands of members of this community as well as social media followers. And I see them as a crossover, but there's definitely a difference in the depth of their connection with us but you know some of them I've really followed some very special journeys as a woman in Holland who was totally agoraphobic and never left her house and through following and engaging with myself and the community she now has a full life you know endlessly we will get messages from people and I think that also when you're building it we have a team now of like 200 people at Trinity London and there's a very big team that look after community and we get 10,000 comments a week through the different channels when we answer every single comment. We're very rare as a brand that we will answer every single comment that people send. And that takes a big management of a community team. But it gives us a sense of what are women thinking and feeling and what's worrying them and how can we help in this situation? And you need that barometer, whatever you're making as a product or, or selling to people, you need to understand the barometer of how people feel at that moment in time and what you're doing for them. So it's invaluable to all the people who work also at Trinity London because they then hear these messages. So just for their, some days it's a really tough, long working day at Trinity London. Other days we have the candy flush machine because we launched a new product and it's like a carnival. But when they hear this stuff from women that could probably, because we have a very young team to an extent at Trinity London compared to, you know, our, our consumers 35 plus and our team is, you know, I'm the oldest by many years in the company. And then there's maybe a token few people who are 50 and most people are 40, a lot are 30 and many, many are 20. That they feel this could be their mother or their aunt or their older sister. And it makes them feel great that there's a purpose here that isn't just whatever their job remit is. Extraordinary. Let's move on to your third and final failure, which I found this tremendously moving even to read. So I don't know what it's going to be like to talk about and as you've put it, it's failure as a single mother. Tell us why you chose this. I think that you question yourself more as a single mother because there isn't somebody else in the room to share the joy, the pain, the worry, the torture, whatever it might be of bringing up children. So you will maybe say more often to yourself, have I done the right thing? You know, and there's a few instances in bringing up Lila, where I've questioned, did I do the right thing? And is it a failure? It's more, I've questioned whether I've been a failure in it. So with the relationship I have with Lila now, and the girl that she is, I think I'm really lucky that she is where she's at. You know, it's, it's more than luck. It's also that I've done something right. But there have been times when things happen where people would look and think she shouldn't have done that. That's been when I've really questioned to myself whether I made the right decision. Because yeah. you're, I mean, you're a single mother twice over, aren't you? Because you split from your ex and then he died by suicide. So that must feel profoundly alone, profoundly single. Yeah, it, it does. I think when you, when you get separated, because we got separated before he died, he wasn't so well in other areas, Johnny. But there were times when, as a separated couple, we were the best parents when he was well. And I really thought, how lucky am I that we are so close that we can be incredibly supportive to each other in Bring Up Lila. So when you make a decision to separate, it's the hardest thing to do when there's nobody else involved, which there wasn't for either of us. But it was just something that I, I felt that had to be done. The loss then of somebody dying that way when you didn't expect it, and then the removal for that child of their dad in a very harsh way. And also my stepson who lost his dad too, you know, he was 18, 19. Even though you might have many friends and, you know, lots of little things that were there, like I have a brother and you sort of think the uncle will be like the dad, but he then was living in Australia. So I kind of thought, Who's going to be the man that I feel Lila needs in her life? At that time was feeling more traditionally that every child should have a mother and a father. Then you can actually know it doesn't have to be a mother and a father. What it has to be is two people 
in that person's life who will offer them different things. And when Lila was, since she was born, she had a, a nanny. She was a maternity nurse called Jenny. Jenny then, every year I also stay because I was, when I stopped working in England, I worked abroad and I had to go and leave on a Sunday, come back on a Friday. So Johnny would look after Lila at home. But then when we split up, he would have her two nights a week and then I'd have her at the weekend. It was very kind of weird role reversal of husband and wife. But Jenny was constant. She was there. Jenny is weirdly like Lila's sort of grandmother mother. And my mother had Alzheimer's. So towards, you know, when Lila was growing up, she wasn't a grandmother, grandmother. And I was sort of mother father. But what it meant was Lila had that kind of unconditional, I know what food you need to eat now thing, which was not me. She had life lessons, unconditional love, a little spoiling and dad kite stuff from me. And so it has allowed her to be really well-rounded. She's in a way an only child. And I think the one thing of an only child, even though she has her brother, who's like 10 years older, is that they have this self-confidence. I don't think if you're one of a few, you have, because you're always kind of measuring yourself up or being measured up or, you know, it might mean then that you don't try so hard for so much in life, but I know many single kids who are very successful. But I look in wonder at Lila at the age she is and think, you so believe in yourself. Because when I might say, you're so whatever, and she goes, I know, mommy. And I'm like, okay, even though it's the weirdest upbringing you had and the most profound things happened to you. And sometimes I think, you know, you didn't have that classic, let's all sit around the table as a big family with lots of kids and a mother and father. I said this to somebody last night and discussed politics and and life stuff that might have been boring when I was a kid to listen to, but it gave me a certain amount of education, which she has not had because we didn't have that upbringing. But she's had other stuff. And, you know, having the impact of something really big when you're younger makes you in some ways grow up a lot and in some ways remain a child for longer. Was she eight when her father died? She was nine. She was nine, yeah. That must have been such a difficult conversation for you to have with her. Yeah, it was. It was. I was very lucky because when it happened, she was at school, two policemen came round to my house and told me. And, sorry. No, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And my sister came around very quickly and she was very good friends with Julia Samuel, who's a fantastic grief therapist and wrote wonderful books called This Too Shall Pass and, and two books on grief. And she came around before my daughter had come back from school. And she told me what to say. She gave me the words. Trini, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You are amazing. What an incredible mother, mother-father, as you put it, <laughs> for Lila to grow up with. You are clearly such tremendous fun apart from anything else. And we see the love between the two of you on those Instagram videos. It's just a joy for us all to behold. You are so incredible for what you've got through and who you are and how all of this trauma that you've been through has shaped your extraordinary outlook on life. It is honestly a privilege to witness. And I'm so honoured that you shared that with me. Thank you so, so much. And I, I wonder if I can ask you something else, which is more for the people going through fertility issues right now. And a lot of them I know listen to this podcast, yeah. partly because I've spoken about my own. And I know that you went through nine rounds of IVF before Lila and another seven afterwards. And I just, again, want to pay tribute to the courage that takes, the titanic level of courage. But for any of us who need a little hope... <laughs> Is it worth it, Trini? Like when you look at Lila now, all of the pain and all of wow. the courage that that took, do you think, oh my goodness, thank goodness I kept going? The time in which you decide you want to be a mother or what, what makes you think you want to be a mother, and that's a profound thing to think about because I didn't think in my 20s I'd never burning desire to be a mother. In my early 30s, I didn't have a burning desire to be a mother. Um, Susanna was being a mother and I found it a inconvenience to the growth of our business. You know? <laughs> but, but did you find I, it painful as well? It must have been no, quite no. I found it irritating. Okay. And being really candid, I found it irritating. <laughs> and and then I sort of woke up one day, whether we call it biological clock or whatever, age sort of thirty five, and I thought, I really want to be a mother. 
maybe it was when I'd sort of let go and got over all my mother issues, <laughs> whatever it was. But I just had this, I want to be a mother now. And I had had unprotected sex for like 10 years. Okay, I'd never got pregnant. So I sort of knew I couldn't get pregnant actually for years, but I never thought how much do I want to be a mother. So when I made that decision, I went literally that day to IVF because I knew there was a problem. And I didn't know what the problem was, but Johnny and I had never conceived. So we went and, you know, we had really like one day Johnny's sperm would just look like they were dead. The next day they were swimming the fucking tight, you know, the channel. So it was like, okay, I think he's fine, but it'd be very different one raving for the next. And this is also like 2003. So fertility has come a long, long way. But they said you have unexplained infertility. Such a great catch all, isn't it? And so I just started doing it straight away. And at the time I was earning quite a lot of money. So I'd do it. It failed. I'd do it again. I mean, I did like five in a year. Oh, my okay. God. I literally, like, you know, the Gonal F was, like, in my oh. time. And I was, like, the professional. I mean, I remember when I very first did it, it was, like, Johnny got the surgical gloves on. We did the injection. And, you know, by the time I was doing it the fifth time, I was, like, oh, uh, uh, you know, whatever. So it became mechanical. And I remember when I once did an interview then when Johnny was still alive and I, they said, did it affect you hormonally? And I was, like, a bit. And Johnny was, like, so fucking much. <laughs> It was probably, I've turned into a really hormonal cow. And That's I think I was probably nice. very difficult to be around. And each time it didn't work. So the first time it didn't work, the second time I got pregnant, then that one I just lost, lost. And then I waited like a month and then I did another one and then it didn't take. And then I did another one and it didn't take. And then I did another one. So within 18 months, that was probably. And then I got pregnant again. And I then had to give birth because it was, you know, I don't know why I had to give birth. I had to give birth. And Sorry, that was, was that a mistake? No, because there was some problem, but he just said, I can't do a DNC. You have to give birth. Oh, I can't remember why, God, but I I'm just so remember sorry. this kind of, I have to say I have blanked a bit of this out, Elizabeth, because oh, I just think. Fucking surprised. just kind of then like, you're just like yeah. on this. Coaster. And then I did three more full IVF and then I had frozen some of Johnny's sperm we're getting really detailed here but if everyone listens to this for yeah. an element of agility, I'm sorry to the boys who are like whoa but this is like a girl's chat and in fact a boy's chat because they have to go through it the other side if you're in a relationship with a man so Johnny was away Johnny was away at a rehab you know that's where our marriage was at okay and I remember Dr. Wren called me up and she said Trini I've got some of Johnny's stuff do you want me to throw it away or not and I was like don't know what's going to happen in life. I said, I'll come in, just shove it in, you know. <laughs> so I remember, went in, put my legs in the stirrups, shoved it in, and I left. And I literally left and stopped thinking about it. I was like, Pff. and then, you know, a month later, I bled. I thought, there we go again, you know, kind of like that. I was just like, because things weren't great on lots of levels, I was like, Pff. and then I um, remember I get to the next month and I think, oh, I didn't get my period. And Mari Rent called me up. She said, Trini, why haven't you come in? Because usually I was like, day 11. I was like, can I come and stay? Can I come and stay? And she went, no, you've got to wait till day 13. You know, it was like, oh. And she called me up. She said, Trini, it's day, day 120. I don't know. It was really later. What the fuck's going on? And I was like, I've lost it. She said, well, just come in. And I was pregnant. And I was like, oh, my God. And she said, okay. And then she sent me to this man in Wimbledon because she said, you have to go and do all this anti-miscarriage thing. So I had to take these horrible steroid injections every day, which I hated taking. And they stung me. And I was like, oh, I really thought I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep it. But I then went to America and I did the Oscars with Susanna. We're both pregnant. And I immediately called my obstetrician and I said, I'm bleeding. And I really thought I'd lost Lila. And I remember I came back from America and I went straight to St. Mary's Paddington. And he had one of those mobile ultrasounds. I think I had that inevitable feeling I've lost the baby, just like this sort of flat feeling. And then I heard her heartbeat. Then I was like, oh, my God. You know, I so didn't expect to hear her heartbeat. I think I had a scan every two weeks because I, she was also the wrong way around and upside down. And she was born with, with talipes in both her feet. So she didn't push her feet out that much because she had very, you know, they, all her feet had to be broken when she was born. And she um, didn't kick. So... Most mums, they always hear the kick and feel the kick. And so she, that kind of, I never knew she was inside me easily. And then she was born early because I lost water and she was born a sort of month and a half early. 
I didn't know what kind of mother I'll be. Like when you spend that long, Elizabeth, you don't quite know mm. will you be that natural. Like I had Susanna as a role model who to me was this most incredible mother earth mother. Her kids came first. She was, but she didn't sort of treat them preciously. She was like sort of get on with it, country style upbringing of don't be precious. Mm. You know, brilliant mum. And she taught me a lot about being a mum. I mean, she had three by then and I had one. So I was obviously always going to be more precious with Lila. Yeah, she taught me a lot. I think what made me feel fully maternal was that I breastfed Lila for a year and I did start working after three weeks of having Lila. And when I look back, I think, do I wish I'd spent longer not working? But I kind of didn't have the option because I needed to earn money and I was the main breadwinner. But there were times when I was in America doing a TV show, living in this house, and there were cables everywhere, and Jenny would come up so I could go and breastfeed and take her away. And it was just like the weirdest thing. But that breastfeeding of Lila, that moment of intimacy at the beginning of the evening, at the end of the evening, which I had for a year of just whatever else and however full life was because of the circumstances of our life, I think made me so close to her in that very, very raw level when you just look at your baby as it's feeding. So I learned to be a mother in that first year because when you're not ready to be a mother and then you think you want to be a mother and then you you try to be a mother and you can't be a mother, you let go of the fact, can you be a mother? I totally, totally understand that. And you think so much about it and you hear so much about it from other people that it becomes stressful in and of its own right, thinking, yeah. I'm fighting for this thing so hard and I don't even know whether I'm going to be any good at it. Like, how, Ex- yeah, yeah, exactly that. And if you're somebody that by nature is such a fighter, you're a fighter, I'm a fighter. It's so hard to then decide, do I let go or not? Because there's this fight for the sake of, I need to fight for this because I feel this is a fight I should have, not is this a fight I want? And the hardest decision is for those people who decide IVF is not the right route. Then there's the route of, is it that I really want to be a mother? So there are many other ways of being a mother. And what does that look like? And then you sometimes don't know, do I want to be a mother or do I want to be a blood mother? And how different are they to me as a concept? I have friends who are all those things. They're surrogate, they're nothing to do with the baby physically. They didn't have it even inside them. They all are mothers I look at who all mother in a different way, who I really love and respect. And it's a choice. It's just your choice of of what you want to do with your life, because it is going to be what life you give somebody else, but it's also what you want to do with your life. Oh, Trini, thank you so much for what has been a really beautiful interview. And the last thing I want to ask you about, actually, because I'm not sure whether it's urban myth or not, but it's the fact that your nickname, Trini, comes from an early experience of meeting someone involved in the film St. Trinians. Is that right? So that was a guy called Frank Lauder, and he was either the producer of St. Trinians because a friend of mine's or the writer of St. Trinians, one or the other, I don't know. But I was very naughty at school when I was very young. I was about five and I went to a day school and I cut a plat off of a girl in needle class because she'd done something and I just cut this plat off. I had some scissors in my hand. Very bad when I have scissors in my hand. And I was sent home and my dad was there with this guy and he said, you are just like these girls that I'm writing about. I think he was a writer for order. Got it. Thank you so much. I am really, really honoured and pleased you came on How to Fail. That's one of my favourite evers. And thank you so much for all that you are, all that you do. And Trini Woodall, thank you so much for coming on How to Fail. Okay, darling. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.